Good morning. Well, you say it's an honor to have me here. It's, you can't imagine what an honor it is for me to be here with you. Uh, to be full circle, to have, to have come here as a uh, goofy teenager and to now be back speaking to some of my former students and some of you are from our local church at GAC and it's just, it's just a joy to be here and with some of the men who taught me and some of the brothers I fellowship with in the past. Praise the Lord. So yeah, I've got to rush back. Don't, don't feel bad for me. I'm going to just preach the sermon to all my classes today, so it's no big deal. No, I, I have shared a little bit this morning with some of my students what, what I'm sharing here. I'm excited about this, this study in Philippians. I've been in Philippians soaking all summer long. Our church, Gak, is, is going through it, but I was studying it previously, and that's why it's on my heart. I know that this year your theme is transformed, taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, transformed to be made in the image of Christ. What a joy. What a great theme. But I thought, who is a man who's been transformed? Uh, when the rubber meets the road, how can we see a, a life transformed? Just look at the life of Paul. He met Christ on the Damascus Road. His life was completely turned upside down when he met and realized that Jesus was Lord and Messiah. Everything changed from that point on. So I want to look at his life. I want to look at a man who had the mind of Christ. He calls his Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 to have the mindset of Christ Jesus. So let's do that. Let's look at Paul's prayer. Today we'll do that. Let's look at Paul's perspective. Let's see his priorities. Let's look at his call to humility, his humble life, which is modeled after Christ's. Let's look at his confidence and then We'll also look at Paul's contentment, and I pray that this will be uh, something that God uses to transform our lives. Well, you just heard the scripture for today. I'm going to read it one more time, and this is my prayer, verse 9, chapter 1, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, those first eight verses, though, of this letter, you become keenly aware that Paul has a deep affection for these Philippian believers. Like no other letter, you see his, his love pouring off the page, his affection. He has in his mind's eye, as he writes this letter, the people that he led to Christ, Acts 16. You should check it out for backstory. In Acts 16, he leads the Philippian jailer to the Lord. He casts a demon out of a slave girl. Her life is transformed. You, you see him leading Lydia to Christ, and the Lord opens her heart to receive what is being preached. He has these people in his mind. Those are the faces, as he is expressing the first eight verses, his gratitude to God for them. Now, he's going to turn to prayer for them. You see, that heartfelt desire for these people, these Philippians, it cannot be immediately fulfilled and expressed to them because of his circumstances. He can't go and love on them because he's chained to guards. He's in a prison cell in Rome. And so how will he express this affection? He'll do it in prayer. He'll do it in the form of prayer. And so thanksgiving in the first eight verses now becomes 
prayer in verses 9 through 11. And so in those verses, 9 through 11, this epic prayer for dear believers comes out. Now, in verse 4, he's previously mentioned that he has lifted up joyous prayers. He often thinks of them, and he references these joyous prayers he prays for them. And now in these verses, you get to actually listen in. You get to be a fly on the wall of his prayer life. Wouldn't it be cool to listen to the prayer of an apostle? Oh, wait, we can. And so right here, we get to see thanksgiving turn into joyous prayer. How would he pray for believers? How would he pray for us? This kind of gives me a shrinking feeling in my prayer life as I see his epic prayer. I wonder if you've ever heard this song. It's, it's by a, a country singer. Anybody listen to country music? You may not want to raise your hand and admit it. Well, there's this guy named, his name's Jaron Lowenstein. Sounds like a country singer, right? Lowenstein, he sounds like maybe a Jewish rabbi. But he writes this song, it's from a few years back, and it's called, I'll Pray For You. I'll Pray For You. And it's about a bitter breakup with a, an ex, and he puts a twist on prayer. And, and I gotta say, I'm thankful that this, these are not Paul's sentiments for us. He says, I, I haven't been to church in a while, since I don't remember when, things were going great till they fell apart again. So I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do. He said, you can't go hating others who have done wrong to you. Sometimes we get angry, but we must not condemn. Let the good Lord do his job. You just pray for them. And here's his prayer for them, for her. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. Not okay. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray that all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, honey, I'll pray for you. I'm really glad that uh, I found my way to church because I'm feeling better. I, I thank God for the words. Yeah, I'm going to take the high road and do what the preacher told me to do. You keep messing up, and I'll keep praying for you. And then it ends with these words. I pray your tire blows at 110. After that, I am so thankful for Paul's prayer. Sets a whole different tone. That he is praying like this for the saints, for us. What a great prayer that we could pray for each other. What does he pray for? What's he pray for? Does he pray that they'll have health, wealth, and prosperity in their best life now? Does he pray that they'll be free from troubles? No. Consider, again, the epic, monumental prayer. So here's the breakdown of his prayer. He prays that they would abound in love, but not just any love, not some sentimental love. It's a love banked in by knowledge and discernment. Lord, may they have a principled, biblical love. Lord, number two, may their love be free from hypocrisy. May they be pure and blameless, Lord. And then he prays lastly, really, he, he prays that they would have lives that are fruitful, connected to Christ so they're bearing fruit, the fruit of a righteous life. One of my favorite preachers is, is a guy named James Montgomery Boyce, and he illustrates this prayer. He, he illustrates the relationship between these three requests right here. It's the illustration from electrical science, and I am not a science guy, but I thought this was clever. Electrical theory has a basic formula. He says, well, we know that volts times amps equal watts. Voltage is the measurement of pressure, right? 
Amps is the measurement of the flow, flow of the electricity, and watts is the resulting measurement of power. Volts times amps equals watts. Watts, in other words, is, is the final product, it's the product of the pressure multiplied by the flow of the electricity, everything that Paul says you could express in these terms. It's as if he's saying all these good works, verse 11, this righteous life, the watts, depends on being filled with God's love. And God's love is the pressure, the volts behind the good works. Good works also depend on the channel of the amps. It must be a free flow for the amps to be high. And our lives must not be filled with resistors that can impede the flow. Our lives must not be filled with condensers which would store up that flow for our own private use. We must have lives that are open and transparent. The love of God times a life free of resistance equals good works or the fruit of a righteous life. So the ultimate goal is that their love would empower, God's love would empower their lives and flow unhindered by sin, unhindered by hypocrisy, out into fruitful, righteous lives for the glory of God. That's how he ends it. And so again, your theme this year is transformed, becoming like Christ. I love that you're, you're putting an emphasis on your personal holiness. That's what Paul desires for these Philippian saints. This is the prayer I know of your faculty and staff, and I'm kind of one of those, and I'm thankful to be able to pray this for you. Paul prays that they would be loving, knowledgeable, wise, discerning, pure, and fruitful. May that resemble you. May you resemble that apostolic picture of a godly man or woman. In other words, what we're saying is, it's what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27. Let's just put it this way. He prays that they would live lives worthy of the gospel. Will we live lives worthy of the gospel? We will pray to that end for you. So look at that first part. Look at that prayer. It's a, in verse 9, it's a prayer for increased love. There's the voltage, right? And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. What is the subject of this abounding love? Is it he's praying that they would have increased love for other people? Or is he praying that they'll have abundant love for God? And the answer is, in my opinion, yes. It's all those. Paul is praying that love would overflow up to God and therefore, as a result, out to other people in an unlimited abundance. Paul was a man grounded in the Old Testament scriptures saturated in them, and so he very much knew the two tables of the Ten Commandments. He knew the structure was, first four of the Ten Commandments has to do with how you love God, the, the vertical, loving God, and, and the last six of the Ten Commandments have to do with the, the horizontal, how we love others, and, and those overlap. And so he's praying, in other words, Lord, let them grow in their love for you and for others. May they love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and May they love their neighbor as their self. And so if you love vertically and horizontally, you would fulfill the law if you live like that. And so Paul prayed that the Philippians' love would overflow, rising up to God and out to others. What a prayer. What a prayer. What a kind prayer to pray for ourselves and for our loved ones, a parent for a child, a teacher for a student, a student for another student, a husband for a wife, whatever it is. What a kind prayer. Lord, help my loved one to love you more. That's a great prayer. Lord, help me to love you more. 
because I don't love you with all my heart, soul, mind, strength like I should. Lord, let them love you more. Let them look at people through your eyes. Let the gospel sink in. What is that New Testament love? I mean, certainly it's that unconditional, no strings attached, selfless love that's modeled by Jesus in chapter 2 where we see the Son of God loves us no strings attached. He loves us sacrificially, substitutionally. What a perfect remedy for a church. This church here in in Philippi, there's disunity in the church. There's backbiting. There's bitterness. There's disunity. What a kind prayer for them. Lord, help them to love you more and help them to love each other more. Help them to love like the Lord Jesus, who although he existed in the very nature of God, he didn't regard that equality of God as something to use for his own advantage but he goes on to say he, he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. He, he added something. He took on the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now there's your model for love. That is love, where the hero dies for the villains. Such love would be a perfect remedy for our disjointed lives, our bickering and our fighting. Selfishness, self-interest, disunity remain in churches today in our personal lives. In chapter 4, you're going to see a reference to two ladies, Judea and Syntyche, and he's going to say, I I plead with them, plead with them to be of the same mind, to be unified. Oh, that we would be known for increasing love for each other. One of the church historians named Hurlian made mention in one of his writings of the fact that when the early church was really starting to grow in the Roman Empire, the government was suspicious of these new Christians, and so they sent spies into different congregations because they were afraid that these Christians would be disloyal to the emperor and to the state. So one of these spies goes into a first-century church and comes back, and this is the report. These Christians are very strange people. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent, but whom... They seem to be expecting at any time. And my, how they love him. And my, how they love one another. If a spy infiltrated Emmaus Bible College, would there be enough evidence to accuse us of loving God and loving others? See, this is what Paul prays elsewhere, like in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. He says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone just as Ours does for you. Do you ever feel like you've got no more love to give? There's just no more to give? Or do you ever feel like there are certain people you just could never love? I have felt like that. I don't know how I could love that person after what they did to me. Well, is it possible to love the unlovely? Is it possible to love unconditionally? and to have a constant flow of love flowing out of you that you could never produce on your own strength. I I love Romans chapter 5. Verse 5 tells us it's possible to love. Chapter 5 of Romans, verse 5 says, the love of God's been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The love of God's been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So if that is true, we have an unlimited capacity to love. We have a connection to infinite resources, to a God who is love, and to the Holy Spirit, who when we abide in Christ, reproduces the life of Christ in us, he bears the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as we abide in Christ, John 15. So the Holy Spirit never runs out of love. 
This implies that if God's love flows into our lives, it should flow out of our lives to others. And, and so the Christian must be filled with the love of God, and, and God's love must be flowing out of him. This is, again, the result of a, an abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus. Some of you, as Brooks mentioned, may be feeling like you can't do this. No, you can't. Jesus said, apart from you, you can do nothing. But if you plug in, stay connected with Christ, who knows what he could do through you this year? That's the secret to the Christian life, abiding in Christ. But this love that he prays will be increasing in their lives towards God and others. Do note 9b, the second part of verse 9, that this is not a sloppy, sentimental love. It's not just a matter of emotions, the way the, love, the world speaks of love. This love is qualified. It needs to be coupled with knowledge and discernment, that they would abound in love with knowledge and discernment. In other words, our love should have bookends on it. Knowledge and discernment. Love should be perceptive, grounded in the knowledge of God and His ways. It should be a principled love. It shouldn't be a sloppy agape. So here is the, the prayer for knowledge and insight. And my prayer, verse 9, is that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So overflowing love needs parameters. Paul is not naive, throwing out love like a cliche, like our world does. Tolerate anything and accept everything. That's not love. He says that love needs banks, just like a river needs banks. One bank is called knowledge, the other bank is called discernment. And your love needs to flow through these two banks to be safe and healthy for each other in your disunified state. The concept of love today is like a river and if expressed with just this free flow without any discretion or any discernment, it can do damage in lives. And we're seeing that in our culture. Rivers can be a blessing, but they can be devastating when they overflow the banks and destroy cities and homes. Water is a blessing, but that much water flowing without the banks can destroy lives. And if our love, as our culture puts it, is just pure emotion and sentiment without any discernment, any truth, any principle, any knowledge from God's word, any model for us in Christ, it can be devastating to different people's lives. Knowledge needs love. That's true. Don't you agree? Knowledge needs love. You don't just want cold orthodoxy. But love also needs knowledge and discernment so that love will be responsible. Paul can speak of those who have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Pure emotion without knowledge is harmful. Feelings above knowledge is irresponsible. You can feel out of love with a spouse and then feel in love with someone who's not your spouse. That's not love. You can feel that love would be enabling someone, but that's not discerning love. That's harmful. You may feel that love would never discipline a child, but that's wrong, because if you love your children, you'll discipline them. Love with knowledge disciplines for the other's good. Love may confront others. Ooh, confront another? I like encouraging. I don't always like rebuking or correcting, but love will sometimes do that. It it must be a growing love, but it must also be a knowing love, right? 
I like what one preacher named Kent Hughes says. He says about knowledge, our existential postmodern culture is very sentimental about love. We've heard from the 60s on, all you need is love. As if other-directed goodwill is the answer to life. The modern proverb of our day says, love is blind, suggesting that blissful ignorance is what love is all about, is blissful ignorance. But this is not the love Paul desires. Do you have a biblical worldview about love? How are you doing in your relationships you get to Emmaus? <gasps> there she is. There he is. <gasps> Googly feelings. Sentimental love. Is it biblical love? Is it running within the banks of knowledge and discernment? I like this quote by Frank Sheed. He says, a virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would be a strange God who would be loved better by being known less. Love of God is not the same thing as knowledge of God, cognitive, intellectual knowledge. Love of God is immeasurably more important than this head knowledge of God. But if a man loves God knowing a little about him, he should love God more by knowing more about him. For every new thing known about our God is a new reason for loving him. In other words, the more you know about God through Scripture, through walking intimately through and with him, the more reason you have to love him. Now, that's not true of some people. The more you know about some people, the harder it is to love them. Like you might have a nice first impression. You get to know them, and wow, they're really annoying. Um, but God helped me to love them anyway. But that's not true of our God. The more we know about him, our wonderful Savior, the more you love him. And I can say that's true for me. So every new thing, one writer says, that you learn about Christ's glories, his person, his promises, his saving work, each new discovery in his word will become a fresh reason for loving him and a fresh motivation for loving people as yourself. Because this is true, it's so important. I know you've heard this before, but it's so important that you dust off your Bibles that you are regularly gathering for worship with the people of God, with your Bibles open, and your hearts prepared to hear from God. It's so important. How important that you have a daily personal time with the Lord and His Word. That's how you abide in Christ. And then He bears much fruit in your lives. But if you're not in His Word, you're like a branch disconnected from the tree. You can do nothing. Nothing of eternal significance. And then the other bank is discernment. He prays for discernment. I'm getting ahead of myself. The other bank is discernment. He, he prays that they might have discernment. Knowledge and discernment. In other words, insight, mature insight, a sensitive moral perception about things. Now, now, one might have an affection for another person, but that doesn't mean that you'll express that affection in an appropriate, healthy way, right? You must bring discernment to the relationship. There are moral and ethical considerations that are to govern this overflowing expression of our love for people. To discern something is to, to distinguish, to make a difference. So love expresses itself in different ways. Love needs discernment. I, I might show love through praising someone at this moment, but in this context, love will look like encouragement or maybe rebuke or correction or discipline. Again, we don't want a sloppy agape. We want a love that's informed by truth. It's what we're told in, in first. Corinthians chapter 13, as we learn about what love looks like, love rejoices in truth. And so we need wisdom and discernment in doing relationships with people. 
finally, in verse 10, he says that this love must be discriminating. It must be knowledgeable and discerning so that we can discriminate, approve, make distinctions. So we can say what is best. So we can discriminate between what is good and what's best, what is superlative, what is essential as opposed to just unessential. We need this discerning, discriminating love. Love that is, one writer said, love that is running without banks of knowledge of God and discernment is able to discriminate and determine what is most excellent, what is the best. There are a lot of things in life that are good, but some things are best. What is that thing that will glorify God in my life? There are all sorts of Christian liberties, but we need to be able to have knowledge and discernment so we can discriminate and say, this is essential, this is not essential. This is worth standing up for. This is not worth dying for. This is worth doing. This would be the best and bring God the most glory. This discrimination is another way of talking about spiritual tact. Have you ever met someone who doesn't have tact? Ooh, they're annoying. But the believer needs this discrimination, this tact, to be able to know how to make moral decisions and how to best relate to someone in a situation. And and so what we're saying is basically this. Paul is praying for a limitless overflow of love to God and others informed by a growing knowledge of Christ, cognitive and personal, and all this will produce practical insight for living well with others. How necessary it is to have this discernment in our relationships. I I like what Kent Hughes says on this as well. He says, if God's children overflow with love to God and others, along with a growing personal knowledge of God and Christ, and if they have practical insight, they will be able to discern and choose what is best over second best. They'll be able to choose what is best over good. They'll be able to choose the best in knowledge of God, the best in priorities, the best in habits, the best in pleasures, the best in pursuits, the best in this course of action with a family member, the best virtues. They'll be able to discern what is true and honorable and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. And so the ultimate end of this prayer for abounding love that's discerning and knowledgeable is this, verse 10. It's a prayer that they won't have a hindered life. He prays they'd have the moral discernment to choose what is best so they can live pure and blameless lives because Jesus is coming soon. Remember the uh, electrical analogy? if we would have fruitful, righteous lives, the watts of verse 11, then God's love must, like the voltage, flow freely like amps unobstructed through our lives. God's transforming love will not flow freely through lives of sin and hypocrisy. The double life, Mr. Two-Tongues, Mr. Two-Face. Impure lives of hypocrisy will not produce fruitful lives. I mean, Peter will tell husbands, if you are mistreating your wife, your prayers will be hindered. Sin hinders intimacy. You know that in your relationships. You wrong someone, it hinders intimacy. So it is with our God. He wants us to live pure and blameless lives. The word pure in Greek translates sun-tested. This is a word which may possibly be derived from a, a Greek word for sunlight, which would continue this thought of testing. In other words, tested by the exacting standards of sunlight, shown to be unmixed, 
pure and genuine. That's what we're to have, is these pure and genuine lives. Not sinless lives. It's, it's not a call to perfection. We're not preaching perfectionism here. In the ancient world of fine pottery, dishonest dealers of pottery had this habit of filling in the cracks in the pottery with this pearly wax that would blend in well with the color of the pottery. The wax made the cracks undetectable in the shop, but the wax was immediately detectable if the pottery was held up to the light, if it was sun-tested. Dealers would, honest dealers, without problems with their pottery, without cracks in them, with good pottery, would put on their fine pieces a Latin phrase, sencera, which means without wax. From the Latin phrase, we get our English word sincere. May we have sincere lives, that when they're held up to the light, when the Lord sees them, we aren't playing games. We're not living a double life. We're living a single life. That's all. The, the book of James is all about having a single life, not being two different persons, not blessing God with your tongue and then turning around and cursing your brother. I mean, that's a sham. Are we living double lives? I struggle with that. Being the same person here as you are outside of the school, being someone different with certain people. God wants authenticity. He wants a single-minded life, not one that's blown and tossed by the wind. The sincere Christian is not afraid to stand in the light. Paul has in mind here a heart with pure and unmixed desires versus hypocrisy and the double life, a life free of impurities. And then he adds the word blameless, which literally means without stumbling. That Paul is praying that the Philippians will live pure, morally transparent lives free from stumbling. And an implication would be that our lives don't stumble others. The world is so turned off by hypocrisy in the church. And you know, I think we can own up to that and say, you know, you're right. We are hypocrites. We all struggle with that. We're not the Savior, but Jesus has no hypocrisy. He lived a perfect life without sin. And all I can do is tell you, I'm one beggar telling other beggars where I found bread. Let's own up to the hypocrisy, confess it, and draw near the Lord. Let's confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you need to tell someone you're close to about the hypocrisy and the double life and ask for accountability. He says that we're to live these pure and blameless lives, verse 10, in light of the day, the Lord's coming. I think this refers to the rapture, which can happen at any moment. And I think in there is this beam of judgment seat that we will all face as believers. The beam of judgment has nothing to do with our salvation. Our, our, our salvation is not up for grabs at the judgment seat of Christ, the beam of judgment. But our lives are examined. Our service is examined. What did you do with the resources, the time, the energy, the health, the family, the job, the money I gave you? Were you rich towards God, or were you storing treasures on earth? Because as Micah Tuttle often says to me, brother, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Why would we not live in light of that day? My other dear brother, John Glock, often says to me, brother, remember the Bema. Remember the Bema. You will have a life that will be examined. There will be accountability for the believer you will either gain reward or lose reward. What in your life will remain at the judgment seat? What are you doing that will have ripple effects in eternity? 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so Paul is saying that the flaws in our lives must not be covered up with wax. Our lives are not perfect. They will always have flaws until glory day, but we must not disguise them artificially. We must be sincere, authentic, confessing our sins. That's what abiding in Christ looks like, walking with Him, confessing our sins, having that fellowship. We must not give offense or stumble others. God's love will not flow through a Christian whose life is a sham. Hypocrisy will stop the flow of God's production in our lives. It will certainly hinder it. God may work in spite of you. He often does. But don't you want to be part of this great adventure of bearing fruit for Christ? And that is the next part of the prayer, if you will. He prays for their fruitfulness. He prays for the fruit of righteousness. Now it's debated what this exactly means. I'm at the point where I think he's talking about the fruit of a righteous life. Of course, by faith in Christ, we're righteous in his, his sight. We're justified. We're acquitted. Christ's perfect righteousness was put into my spiritual bank account. That's my status. That will never change. But a person who knows Christ should be abiding in Christ and producing a life of righteousness, righteous deeds, a righteous life, a light in the world. All of this is leading up to this. He prays that they be fruitful Christians. He says, pray, praying that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which is by Jesus Christ. This is not you pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps. This is not you producing good works in your own strength. It's not self-help Christianity. This is abiding in Christ, and He will produce the fruit in your life unto His glory and praise. Notice that the fruit, this is so key, notice that the fruit of a righteous life is produced by Christ, by His Holy Spirit. It's the parable of the vine and the branches. One of my favorite stories in my Christ State kids are rolling their eyes already is, you know, when I was 16, I was invited to a concert, a piano concert in Iowa City. My mom and dad say, we're going to a concert, and I was excited. Maybe it's that country music, you know, but it was a piano recital by George Winston. Anybody heard of George Winston? I, I still, to this day, listen to it, but I wasn't really excited when they came downstairs and told me we're going to a piano recital. So I go, and I've got arms crossed and a bad attitude. I'm listening, and it's beautiful. It caught me off guard. He said, my album's called December, and it's playing, and it's like I could see in my mind's eye Christmas. I could smell the Christmas tree. I could feel the snow on my, my hands and my, it was just so real. He brought it to life and I thought, wow, I got to get this guy's album. And I listen to it all the time on my prayer walks and when I'm studying. Someone says, Mike, you should play. You should play piano like George Winston. <laughs> I literally can't play chopsticks. But if somehow the person and the genius of George Winston lived me, I could live a life like that. Otherwise, no way. But at 17, I met Jesus. You've heard about it. At a youth rally, in Des Moines, I gave my life to Christ. I repented of my sins and trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ. And someone, usually kids at school mocking and say, why aren't you living a perfect life like Jesus? You should live a life like that. I can never live a life like that. But if somehow the person of Jesus lived in me, I could live a life like that. That is the secret to the Christian life. Christ in us. I don't know if you've heard uh, of Lawrence of Arabia. We'll close with this guy, Lawrence Arabia. He was a, a British archaeologist, army officer, a diplomat, a writer. He was well known for his role in the Arab Revolt and the Sinai-Palestinian campaign where he stood with his Arabian brothers and 
uh, it was against the Ottoman Empire during the First World War. Well, after the war, Lawrence took some of his Arab friends to Paris for rest and re recreation, to see the beautiful sights of Paris. So he thought they would love it. The sights of Paris, the architecture, the art, the Arch of Triumph, Napoleon's tomb, etc. They weren't thrilled at all. They were unimpressed, little interest in those things. The thing that really interests them, though, it was the faucets in the bathtub in the, in the hotel sink. They were fascinated with the faucets in the hotel. Where are they? And they're probably in the bathroom again, playing with the faucets, on and off. They weren't used to this in their dry Arabian deserts, free flow of water anytime we want it without end. As they were getting ready to pack up and leave from their, their trip, he, again, couldn't find them. He went in the bathroom. They were in there with wrenches trying to take the faucets off of the sinks. They said, you see, it is very dry in Arabia. What we need are these faucets. If we have them, we have all the water we could ever want. Well, Lawrence went on to explain that the effectiveness of the faucets did not lay in the faucets themselves, but in the immense system of waterworks and plumbing to which they are attached. And he also had to point out the fact that it depended on the rain and the snowfall from the Alps. Many people live lives that are dry like the deserts of Arabia. They have the faucets, but they're not connected to the pipeline, the source, the plumbing, the water system. And they must come to God through Christ. Other people are parched, they're parched, but the problem is it's the impurities in their life that are choking the lines, the free flow. Are you a Christian, but your life is unhappy? You need God's cleansing. You need to confess your sins. You must come to Christ for that cleansing. You must abide. You must reconnect, Christian, so that you can be fruitful, so his love can flow unhindered through your life. And so, may we continue to pursue a deeper love of God so that we might have the resources to love other people. And may this be a discerning love flowing freely through unhindered lives, lives confessing sins, in order that we might produce the fruit of a righteous life, and all of this for the glory of God. So our Savior gets the credit for the life he's living through us. Amen? Father, we're so thankful for your amazing love, for your grace in our lives. We just praise the Lord Jesus, who was God, a very God, who is, who is equal to the Father in every way, but didn't regard this equality with you as something used for his own advantage, but he emptied himself out by taking on the form of a bond servant becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Lord, may that, may that truth of the gospel be the engine that drives our Christian lives. Lord, give us a heart to abide in you so we can see you producing a great harvest in our lives, in our ministry. Would you work in our hearts now? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.